Greetings, everyone, and a warm welcome to you in Intersections. Our aspiration here is going to be to allow you and me and all of us to recognize that there are beautiful things that we can engage with and experience and aspire to in life and in leadership. And they begin from within, but then they also flow into the without, into the space beyond us. And it is the harmonization of this inner space and this outer space that makes us whole, that makes us live a life well lived, and that makes us a complete and successful leader. I call it intersections because our aspiration here is to be at the intersection, at the intersection of eternal truths and breakthrough science, of purpose and profits, of East and of West, of the inner and the outer, of the me, right, what I need for me, and the we, what I need to do for the world. And um, it is when we are at that intersection that boundaries dissolve. And when boundaries dissolve, we can really be our fullest potential. We will today be talking on this topic of adversity. And my goal is to help you explore this conversation in a way that will both go deep within and make you connect with these kinds of aspirations and journeys that you have made by yourself, right? As well as um, learn some formal ideas and thoughts that we can pick from, learn from, and grow from. And I wanna use a catalyst to help us get there. And that is uh, Joe Zhu. Joe is an incredible, very dear friend, an incredible human being, and a role model in so many ways as a leader. All right. so. Joe is a person of indefatigable energy and uh, incredible talent. Among the many hats that he has been wearing is as a wheelchair marathon runner, as a social activist, really someone who has at his heart the betterment of humanity, both at the collective level as well as at the individual level for each person. He was born and grew up in China. He moves to the United States to pursue higher studies at some point in a luminous professional career, which I'm going to ask him to give you a little bit of sort of window into. Uh, he and I share an alma mater, the Sloan School at MIT, where he pursued his MBA. And um, along the way, he's done incredible things, uh, very diverse things, including being the founder of the Gobi Desert Expedition Army Leadership Development Academy, being a senior advisor to the Shenzhen Municipal Handicapped People Association, a chief mentor of the Beijing Xinji Exploring Culture Development Company, luminous contributions in a professional and social sense. I have had the privilege of knowing Joe for, for a few years as um, he has been a very treasured and honored guest in my personal leadership class at Columbia. The first time was when he flew into Hong Kong to talk to our executive MBA students in the global executive MBA program at Hong Kong University. And um, he's one of the most inspiring people I've had the honor and privilege of knowing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joe Zhu. Joe, it is um, you know such a joy for me to be able to share your energy and share your spirit with this beautiful Community, thank you for giving us the honor to joining us for this webcast. I want to just invite you to say hello and everyone say hello to Joe. Hi, everyone. Good morning, the whole class. And thank you very much, Hitendra, for inviting me uh, to speak to the class. It's always a great pleasure and to speak to you and the everybody else in the class. And the, uh, thank you very, very much for this privileged opportunity. I feel humbled 
to be to have this opportunity to speak to such a wonderful cohort. Thank you, Joe. You are in so many ways an ideal person for us to have this conversation with, since we are talking on this topic, which I know has been such an incredible part of your life's path. So I want to just start, though, from the early beginnings of your academic and professional journey. What was it like, particularly as a young professional, in the years prior to your coming to the United States? Can you talk a little bit about, about that chapter of your life? Yes, of course. I graduated actually in 1986. And the, uh, immediately after I graduated from my college, I was recommended to work uh, for the central government in China and based in Beijing. So I was uh, literally very much like an assistant of uh, foreign investment in the Ministry for Machinery and Electronics Industries. And the, so the big, biggest part of my responsibility was to navigate uh, this, the foreign investors, large foreign investors like uh, Microsoft, like AT&T and IBM. At the time in 1980s, China was practicing centrally planned economy. So foreign investors cannot just simply step into China and set up any partnership with anyone they want to. They would have to get approval and from the government. So my role was to very much like a matchmaker to direct uh, the foreign investors to the right potential Chinese partners, which were mostly national or state-owned enterprises. So I worked at that position for about six and a half years before coming to the United States and initially studying Carnegie Mellon and later on uh, MIT. Uh, the reason for me to want to leave uh, China was the Tiananmen Square event in uh, June uh, 1989. Because I was living in Beijing at the time, I witnessing everything happening in the square and the uh, where I live is just like a few blocks away. So uh, because at that time, my dream was to follow my career uh, working for the central government, and the, I wanted to grow up to be a senior government official, hopefully, you know, in uh, late 40s or late 50s to become a minister, a good one, and to really lead people into a prosperous society and enjoying their life. However, what happened in Tiananmen Square really shattered my dream. I was just like someone all of a sudden uh, losing his purpose of life. Because at that time, all my purpose of life was to work very hard and contribute to the betterment of uh, my, my country. And all of a sudden, when I realized this is probably not the, the, the government that I want to work for, and I was very, very miserable. As probably a lot of people may uh, understand the feeling after you are deeply in love with someone for years, for six and a half years, all of a sudden, you find that this is not the person that is worthy of your love. So eventually, I tried very hard. It took me three, hard, uh, three years and to work very hard, eventually get out of the country and uh, study in Carnegie Mellon and the uh, study public management. Everything seems to be working very well. After I graduated from our Carnegie Mellon, I worked for a precision machining company in the, uh, of the United States as a chief representative in China. And later on, I founded my own consulting company, help uh, large uh, multinational companies, including GE, uh, General Electric, and the uh, United Technology Incorporated, and to serve as a supply market consultant. So I set up my own consulting company in 1999. So I came to the United, come back to the United States again, and I started uh, 
in a Sloan Fellow Program and the, got my MBA. At that time, I became extremely passionate to found startup. Before that, I did not even dream of uh, I am an entrepreneur. So I thought my only talent was to work for government. But after I came to the United States, working for the U.S. government, a U.S. Uh, manufacturing company in China, and have a better understanding of the business and market and the industry, my potential seems to be developed to be an entrepreneur. So I went to MIT with a purpose to become an entrepreneur. After I graduated from MBA program. Actually, before I was uh, in the middle of raising the first round of funding and for about six million dollars and to found my first internet company. And six months later, after I graduated uh, from my uh, MIT, that was uh, year 2000. So everything seems to be very well, moving very well. And I was our, my team was very, very helpful to get the six million dollars for the first round. And the but all of a sudden, uh, something changed and basically changed my life tra tra trajectory again. Thank you for that, Joe. I mean, I think, you know, I want to pause there, even though there's an incredible next chapter that is going to come in the next part of your story, because the moment that you're talking about is a moment that I relate to very well, not just from my life, but, um, you know, having the privilege of teaching really successful and smart and ambitious young talent at the business school at Columbia. That's the moment they're in, right? Where where they've had a certain hunger and a certain path and um, a certain perhaps set of challenges, but also opportunities that have ultimately gotten them into Colombia. And in a sense, the world is our oyster in that moment, right? Like when we're going to a top business school in a leading economy in the world, and we just we just assume and we just feel the future is going to be just like laden, you know, with just a bed of roses, right? And, you know, of course, we realize there are going to be challenges and, you know, hard work to be done. But but we are hoping for a smooth ascension into positions of higher authority, power and success, right? And I'm just, I'm imagining that that's how you must have felt in that zest that you had just coming out from, coming out from Sloan. And then, and then something happened. And the, uh, so half a year after I graduated from Sloan, you know, one day when I was traveling in China, on one hand, I was trying to found automobile part company, a joint venture company with a Detroit company, you know, uh, in Chongqing and in Chongqing and Shanghai. And in the meanwhile, I was still running my own consulting company. And also in the meanwhile, I was also in the process of founding my first internet business company. And one night I suddenly felt a back pain and extremely back pain and numbness in my toes, left leg, and then later on right, right leg. And the, you know, basically overnight, uh, the night before, you know, I felt numbness and my back pain, and, and, and then I fell in the sleep. Four o'clock in the morning, I was awakened by terrible, uh, devastating sharp pain in my back. And the, I found I was not able to stand up. There was no presymptom. Uh, I didn't know what happened, and I was very, very scared. And the uh, and then I found I was not able to be able to stand up again. And I I was traveling in Shanghai at that time, and the uh, so staying in a hotel and called the front desk. And then I was uh, rushed to the hospital in China. Hospital in China in Shanghai. Uh, the doctor did not know what was going on with me. They only found the numbness, uh, or paralysis, and a sensation of my body uh, seems to be inched up from the tip of my toe along my legs eventually end up on my chest. And the, so for 
48 hours, I just experienced the horrible, horrible feeling as if death is crawling up from my toe and to my chest and later on up to my neck. So the doctor did not know what was going on. And they only uh, observed that, okay, I was seems to be dying. So they told me that there was nothing they can do. So eventually, through the help of the doctor, and I was able to, because at that time, my home was in Boston. So I was able to be rushed back to Boston. And the getting off the airplanes, ambulance picked me up and sent me to the medical center directly. So when I was in the medical center, uh, I felt that is very much like the sword of a Damocles and dropping down and down and down. And the, uh, so the sword is just like on my neck. I experienced horrible days and nights for eight days and nights, not being able to sleep at all, extremely anxious, extremely depressed, a horrible pain, like burning sensation as if my whole body was put on the uh, barbecue and oven and the, I just felt a death was coming near and near and to me. Uh, the doctor, my neurologist, told me that uh, after he gave me chemotherapy, uh, because he found uh, the white blood cell was attacking my nerve cell within my spinal cord. And the, so he basically uh, tried three three means. Number one, uh, to kill the bacteria, uh, to, to kill the bad, uh, the, the bad white blood cell through chemotherapy. Also give me large dose of steroids and to suppress uh, possible inflation and infection, inflammation and infection, and also five times uh, plasma exchange. Basically, a doctor made a cut on my artery and the vein, and they draw the blood out from the vein and the going through a centrifugal machine and separate the plasma from the rest of the blood and they put put back in the artificial, what is the artificial uh, plastic, uh, the plasma, and send blood back into my body again. Uh, that was very, very horrible feeling. I was really devastated. By the time, the only feeling that I have is I want me to die. I don't want to live like this. Uh, try to imagine you're burning uh, like a barbecue pig. You know, how would you feel? So I, I, you know, I was, at that time, I was completely... Uh, paralyzed from my, my neck down. The only part of my body that can move is my neck, my eyes, and my thought. I was 36 years old at that time. And the, uh, so lying in the bed, waiting to die, and the, I did three things. Number one, I uh, asked my, my wife to get me a voice-activated tape recorder, and I recorded everything I remembered since two or three years old. And the, I just like, you know, a uh, talking to someone or recorded my voice. I want to leave it as a legacy to my two children. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I called my parents. I, I told them, uh, I lied to them. I lied to them, I'm going to uh, do a research in Scandinavia, and I would not be able to go back home uh, within at least you know, four to six years. And told them I love them very much, but I would have to say goodbye to them. And the actually, it's a farewell you know, for my wife. The third thing I did is to write uh, three death will. Uh, one to the doctor to don donate my body, and you know, for him to do research on to find out what was going on and what was going wrong. And the second is to write a letter to my wife, and the third is to write uh, a death will to my two children. After I did the three things i was waiting to die a uh, doctor gave me has already given me the largest possible doses of sleeping uh, drug but i was not able to sleep at that time i began to ask myself only 36 years old 
is that's all of my life. What is the purpose for me to come into this world? And the, have I lived a meaningful life? And where do I go after I die? So I was very, very devastated. And the, the horrible burning sensation pain and prompted me and to find a way to kill myself. Just feels very sarcastic. I learned everything in Carnegie Mellon and in my college in MIT. Uh, it's not enough to, to help me to find a way to kill myself because I was completely paralyzed, not able to move. But the, uh, eventually, uh, a group of Christians came to my, my ward to see me, and they prayed for me. And I felt as if my anxiety in my heart uh, seems to be discharged. And that night, while waiting to die, and the feeling the numbness is coming closer to here, so I was talking to someone in the sky, in the heaven, in the universe, in the matter it's being called a god or whatever. So I was talking to him. I said, okay, if you are truly being there and watching me, I don't believe that you should be so cruel, watching me to be tortured. And if you can do me a favor for the sake of my aging parents in early 70s, my two little kids, five and six, uh, five and eight, you know, the family. So if you may just give me a chance to live for another three years or five years. So I would do whatever I can do to try to live a meaningful life, even though I didn't know what exactly the meaningful life was. Amazing thing is this, uh, I was, I fell into coma for about two days and nights. And the two days and nights later, I was awakened by a doctor and, and the nurse who was trying to pinch me right over here to wake me up uh, with a needle. I was awakened with a uh, great excitement uh, knowing that I was uh, still alive, but also with great disappointment knowing that, okay, uh, I was, uh, I would be paralyzed and nailed in the wheelchair for the rest of my life. The good thing is that my paralysis recessed from my neck to my chest. It's kind of funny. Uh, I remember when I was talking to the Almighty One uh, in the air, and I said, if you feel I am not worthy to be healed up 100%, I'll be happy enough if I may be just able to sit in a wheelchair and do some consulting work and make enough money to help my family, I'll be very happy enough. And, and that's all. So when I woke up, I felt very disappointed and also very regretted as well. And the, I told myself, I wish I could have prayed that uh, for a complete 100% recovery. So that brought me into a different stage of my life. Yeah, Joe, if I'm mapping this to about type one, type two, type three, what I see having in this kind of phase, the first phase is you were kind of in that type one, that despair stage, you know, almost to the point where you were wishing to die, right? And then and then something really powerful happens as a transformation, as a connection with um, what I'd like to call your inner core, that space within from where you feel you feel a deep sense of connection with something higher than just yourself, right? And that core uh, reassured you, spoke to you, gave you some comfort. You spoke back to it in some ways. And then something beautiful also happened in allowing you at least, um, you know, some amount of your abilities to come back, right, in, in, your, in, in your body. And, and so that's, so you're, I, I see you moving into the type two, into a place where there's a little bit more sort of like just acceptance, you know, of, of what has happened, a state of grace from where you can now start to choose to live again and choose to do the best you can with what you have. But there's a very you know, critical part of your story that is still left to be said. 
Can you can you talk a little bit about going from that place of the breakthrough, the acceptance, to a place where you've taken it to a type three, where it has truly been transformational for you, right? And there is a kind of growth that this has led to, which wouldn't have happened otherwise. And just talk about, I mean, some of those most incredible things that you've done in the last several years. Okay, thank you. And uh, coming back to life is not easy, yeah, because I would have to live a completely different life. Before I was paralyzed, and the, I, I have a lot of hobbies skiing and ballroom dancing and i actually even get a championship in the, one of the ballroom dancing contests all of a sudden i end up in wheelchair and not able to manage my and pool and so i floundered in that situation for about six months or so still wanting to die until one day i was reminded by that voice you know in my mind you promised that you're going to live a meaningful life what is that meaningful life you you want to live? I began to question myself, and the, uh, I complained. I felt uh, depressed for six months, but eventually I realized there's one thing that is very true to me. Whenever I focus so much on my personal loss, personal pain, personal suffering, I felt devastated. But later on, I began to pursue, to ask myself, what is a meaningful life? And the, what is the purpose of my life? Eventually, I found I was falling, I, I fall in love with the education. So uh, I talked to MIT and later on Harvard Business School. Eventually, I got an opportunity to join initially MIT Sloan School of Management to help Sloan School to introduce this uh, executive education program in China. Later on, I was invited to join uh, Harvard Business School and assist the Harvard Business School to set up a Harvard Center in China, which is based in Shanghai. And the, the whole idea is to help, help Harvard University, particularly like Harvard Business School, to promote its executive education and the case research and the faculty immersion program, as well as the MBA field trip. After that, I felt I was deeply in love with education. And I wanted to go a little bit further down into humanity education. Uh, because after 2008, the world financial crisis, I began to question why uh, the super smart people you know, in Wall Street cannot do right, the right thing. And, and the, so I began to believe uh, that there's a humanity problem. So I, uh, after uh, working for uh, Harvard Business School for about uh, six, MIT and Harvard Business School for about 10 years or so, so I set, stepped down from the position of the Director General of Harvard Business School and I moved into private ed education, you know, focusing on teenager education. Uh, whole per I call it a whole person development for teenager. And the, uh, so in order to encourage and inspire the teenagers to overcome the adversities they feel they experience. So I feel I should do something different to prove that they can do better than me. That is uh, to go to Gobi and to run marathon. So in 2013, May 2013, I went to uh, Gobi Desert and together with some volunteers and the EMBA volunteers. So I finished 120 kilometer Gobi crossing within three days and four nights, uh, four days and three nights with the full hands of a blisters. But eventually I finished. Uh, starting from the following year. Joe, Joe, I have to, um, if you don't mind interrupting me, sure, I, mean, sure. you know, I, I have to say that this is so incredible. <laughs> this is so, so incredible. Personally, for me, I consider it an accomplishment if I can, without losing my breath, run from the edge of the Columbia campus to the classroom when I'm getting late mm -hmm. to teacher class. And here you are crossing the Gobi Desert. I mean, it's right. incredible on a wheelchair. 
So ever since I, I realized lives are actually, you know, the when people live in adversity, take example, Gobi Crossing as an example. When people live in adversity, if you, you have a strong goal, strong de- determination to pursue that goal. And if you work in the in the team and you encourage each other in each other, you fully understand what is the meaning and the purpose of your expedition. And you are going to hit a goal, and no matter how hard it is, no matter how impossible it looks like. So, but however, Gobi crossing, I can do it only once a year, and leading a group of uh, teenagers uh, from 40 to 72. But I would have to do something more, like I can do regularly once a month or once every few months, and then I switch to marathon. It's very interesting when I tried my first marathon, November 9th, 2014, in Athens. That's the authentic marathon, which is very, very challenging. Probably is regarded as one of the top 10, top 10 most challenging marathons because it runs from the marathon uh, village uh, by the sea all the way up to, to Athens. So it took me, uh, I, I didn't believe that I was able to finish it at all. And the, but however, and with the help of other people, encouraging each other, eventually it took me uh, seven hours or so to finish the whole race, 42 kilometers. At that time, I did not know there was half marathon. If I knew, I probably have signed up for half marathon. It's interesting in life when you do not know a lot of so-called easy things, so-called benefit. And when they, when you focus on so-called adversity, you need to uh, get through and you actually can accomplish more than uh, you can imagine. So ever since November 2014, I ran the first marathon. I integrate a running marathon with a charity fundraising for charity purposes and with uh, uh, executive education, executive leadership development as well. Uh, I have so far uh, encouraged probably over 4,000 people across across China and also other other places in the world and to follow me to run marathon. And the, uh, so I used to run one marathon each month. And later on, because I had a surgery, two surgery in my sitting area and the doctor could not, uh, did not, does not allow me to run more. But still, you know, I'm trying to run one marathon and the one, the Ironman uh, contest each year to keep me ener- energized and to keep me focused on my dream. That is to uh, inspire young people and the, to integrate education of uh, in ador- adversity experience. Joe, when you say 4,000 people that have been inspired, do you mean 4,000 uh, people who were just um, sitting, you know, not doing much exercise when they could have? Or are these uh, people on wheelchairs who never imagined that they would be in a position to even think about running marathons? Are you are you referring to that community? or uh, Right. Most of them are uh, healthy people. And uh, there are about 100 uh, people uh, in wheelchair. And after I did my first marathon, so the Chinese TV station reported me and wrote a lot of articles about me. So I got invited to do a lot of public speaking to different large companies for their uh, team building, etc. Uh, development. And also also invited to do a free TED Talk in China. And yeah. Yeah, so I didn't mean to inspire other people, but it's interesting. A lot of people came to me after I taught my talk. And the, uh, so I uh, wanted to follow me to join my uh, volunteer team for fundraising for Mediterranean uh, anemia uh, uh, kids. 
So later on, I also found uh, founded uh, I founded a three runner club in China. One uh, targeting families and children, basically between the parents and children when they have a very difficult conversation uh, communication, and particularly teenagers. And also another one for business school alumni in China and MIT, Harvard, uh, including some uh, Columbia MBA as well. And we call that overseas returning MBA alumni runner club. Also, I founded uh, the first wheelchair club in China, being able to bring over 100 wheelchair runners across China to different races. Yeah. Uh, one thing I really find um, remarkable about you is that sometimes we tend to set these kinds of broad goals for ourselves. We are aspirational. We want to like affect the lives of all of these people in society and humanity in the world out there. And we tend to really get so caught up in that larger goal that we sometimes don't have a mindful awareness of what's there right in front of us. It takes energy to focus on the needs of the people right around you. And you are someone who transcends, you know, both of this qualitative and quantitative aspects of life because you've done all these incredible things at that macro level. But I've also seen you live and in person weave magic, you know, with the people right around you. I've seen you do that with my daughter. I've seen you do that with my students. So guys, for all of you, you, know, you should know that when, when Joe came and spoke to my students, they were obviously tremendously inspired. And after the talk, they were lining up to want to have a one-on-one -on -one with him and share a little bit of their own journey or ask some question or something. And it was incredible because Joe had not had anything to eat. He'd just flown into Hong Kong for this conversation. For two hours, he'd been speaking continually with them. And I was like, Joe, do you want to take a break or something? But he was just like oozing. You were oozing with spirit and energy. And one upon the other upon the other. I think he just went on for an hour or more. And then I've seen you do that the same with my daughter. When you heard that she was about to go to college, the way you were sort of really seeking to not just inspire her, but guide her and invite her to write to you and engage with you. And you gave her just so many creative ideas how to think about sort of like that journey forward that she was going to make. I mean, it's just that the capacity you have to give and give and give. It is incredible. Let me ask you one question. What keeps you ticking? What is the source of your energy? Uh, thank you. I feel I'm doing something that makes me really feel a strong sense of a belonging. I feel I was able to help and contribute. I feel I am, I've been working as a serving very much like an ambassador of feeling. That is a feeling of a compassion for people, for human beings. I feel very bothered when seeing people are in anxiety or uh, uh, seeing they're sick. Uh, losing directions, especially young people who face the issue of a life or death, you wanted to commit suicide, and which I experienced. I feel when I was able to be with them, to give them a little bit of advice and to tell them you can do much, much better than me, I feel I see an extension of me in them. I feel even though I cannot physically do a lot of things by myself, but I feel as long as I give my heart to these people, helping them to find a better self of themselves, to build a better career. And the, as a result, they are going to help a lot of people. So I see it's not a work. It's not a labor. Instead, I feel it's a very happy life. I feel the energy seems to be coming from somewhere. I believe there's a strong connection between me and uh, uh, God because later on I became a Christian. So I see me as a ambassador of that compassion. And the, I just, I cannot explain that clearly. 
I just feel uh, I have the urge, and the when I see someone uh, that need my help, I will just do whatever I can to help. Yeah. And the, my advice is that number one, understand, have a deeper understanding what truly adversity means. If you just understand it superficially, you see adversity as a resistance to you against you, and for you to achieve what you want to uh, go after. But however, if you take I call that a bird eye view from top down, God's perspective. You will, you will understand that adversity may serve as a blessing, as a blessing for you, for your life, for your family, as well as for other people. So number one, change your perspective. Number two, and pursue one goal at each time and the altruistic goal. And as a result, and it's going to be beneficial for you, for you as well. So change your perspective and press on and going after your dream. To be continued, Joe, because this is clearly just a, um, a chapter in a beautiful book that you are helping us write together. I want to thank you on behalf of all of us for making this moment happen. You're coming to us all the way from the West Coast in California. I know it's relatively early there. Very, very, very grateful. On behalf of all of us here, Joe, namaste. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Definitely, you know, let's do this. I'll be more than happy. Always looking forward to speak to you and other co- uh, other people in the class. And uh, I'll see you next time. Wonderful. We will certainly be looking forward to having you back very soon with us.